Thank you, Doug. I, I will blame my momentary lapse there on the, the beautiful music of the choir. I really was blown away by that. Um, you know, Martin Luther said that um, uh, music is the handmaiden of theology. And this is a good example of that. It just When you have the, the music and the theology there about the body of Christ and, and our Lord being the head just just goes together just right. And uh, so I was greatly blessed by that. I want to, uh, I want to read to you uh, from the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, there, in the context here, is the four hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin. They're in the house of Tom Bombadil, who has rescued them from being gobbled up by uh, ancient trees. They've come to his house. It's evening. Uh, Tom Bombadil has been singing uh, songs to them in which he is telling stories of the ancient past. And he's, he's telling them in such a way that not as one who himself has been told these stories, but as someone who has been present in their very happening. When they caught his words again, they found that he had now wandered into strange regions beyond uh, their memory and beyond their waking thought, into times when the world was wider and the seas flowed straight to the western shore. And still on and back, Tom went singing out into ancient starlight when only the elf sires were awake. And suddenly he stopped. And I saw that he nodded as if he was falling asleep. The hobbit sat still before him, enchanted. And it seemed as if, under the spell of his words, the wind had gone, the clouds had dried up, and the day had been withdrawn, and darkness had come from east and west, and all the sky was filled with the light of white stars. Whether the morning and evening of one day or of many days had passed, Frodo could not tell. He did not feel either hungry or tired, only filled with wonder. The stars shone through the window, and the silence of the heavens seemed to be round him. He spoke at last out of his wonder in a sudden fear of the silence. Who are you, Master? he asked. That's the same question that Jesus' disciples would ask their master one uh, day and he, out in the lake and in the boat, and he had just stilled a, the storm by his mere command. And we read of their reaction that they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, this is the same question that the phrase we're considering from the Apostles' Creed invites us to probe. We say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Well, this morning we're going to consider, who is this Jesus Christ that we profess to believe in? And this text helps us, that was read, helps us to probe the, the mystery of Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn uh, to that text, Colossians 1, uh, verses uh, 15 through 20. You can follow along. 
Now, as I say, it helps us to probe the mystery of Jesus Christ, and it helps us even as it takes us further into mystery. Because how else can we speak of a passage that teaches us that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is creator of all, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church? You see, this is the paradox of Christian doctrine, and especially as is expressed in the Apostles' Creed, because the more that doctrine defines, the more it leaves us in mystery. But then, I mean, what else can be expected of a discipline that delves into the transcendent God who by his very nature, I mean, he soars above our, our finite ability to understand him. Well, let's get started here. Now, the first two consider is this concept of Jesus Christ is God. And so we read in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. So God is spirit, and as such, he is invisible to man. And furthermore, his very qualities make him incomprehensible. I mean, I mean, how does one comprehend the quality of, of being eternal from the beginning? How does one understand this quality of being unchanging, of being everywhere, of knowing all things, of having power over all things? How can the finite we know with accuracy what is infinite, the infinite being who cannot be seen? Well, we can know to a degree through an image, an image that perfectly expresses the true nature of God. And what our text is saying is that Jesus is that perfect image. Jesus said of himself in John 14:9, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." We have the revelation of scripture, which is the word of God teaches us accurately about God, but Jesus is himself the revelation of God. The writer of Hebrews expresses it this way in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this is what marks Jesus out from all other religious leaders and and founders. They refer to themselves as messengers of God. Jesus comes along and he claims to be God. Now, Man is also referred to in Scripture as the image of God. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11:7, he's referred to as being made in God's likeness in James 3:9. And both of these references are taking us back to Genesis 1:26, where God says, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness." So, man. As Genesis makes clear, both male and female, before the fall, 
did accurately reflect the nature of God. But again, that was before the fall. Man is now a broken image. And even then, before the fall, as an image bearer, he was still a finite bearer. Jesus is the exact imprint. Let's put it in in Hebrews. He possessed, as we're told in Philippians 2, 6, equality with God. And again, as Jesus said of himself in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Now, verse 19, we're going to skip a few verses here for a moment, impresses upon us this unique aspect of Christ. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what he's saying is that Jesus, then and and now, he doesn't possess a, a, a kind of a smaller portion of God's essence. He's not a, a tinier, though accurate, image of God. Jesus possesses all the fullness of God. And that makes sense, because he himself is God. And so we sing about this at Christmas, whenever we sing, O come all ye faithful. We sing of our Lord, sing of Jesus, God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. So Jesus Christ is, he is God. And Jesus Christ is creator. Those last two words that we just spoke of here, not created, leads us to to the next affirmation in our passage, that Jesus Christ is creator. Again in verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, man can be spoken of as the image of God, but as Genesis 1:26 makes clear, he was made in the image of God. Jesus is never referred to as created, never referred to as being made. And that he's being described here as the firstborn of all creation. It's a statement that he existed before any created being came into existence. As the son of God, Jesus is the firstborn. He is the one and only son who, as we say in the Nicene Creed, the way it puts it, is begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now, what then follows in our passage reinforces this uniqueness of Jesus as divine. Look with me in verse 16. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, you might at this point, if you remember well the Apostles' Creed, you might ask a question. Doesn't the Apostles' Creed describe the work of creation to God the Father? I, excuse me, I believe in God the Father, uh, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
Well, yes. Well, then how can Jesus be credited with being the creator? Well, John helps us in his gospel in John 1, verses 1 through 3. He writes, in the beginning was the word. He's referring here by the word to Jesus Christ. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And what John has taken us into is the mystery of the Trinity. God is three persons in one. And this is the point earlier about what I was saying about the more that doctrine defines, it leads us further into mystery. And we don't have time to delve into the doctrine of the Trinity. Some of you may remember I I preached three sermons on uh, the Trinity. If you want to go back to the website, you should be able to find that. But the point being made here in our passage is the preeminence of Jesus over all creation. And he is preeminent because he is creator over all. Our passage is saying, look to the heavens above us. There is nothing that Jesus did not create. Look, look throughout the earth. There is nothing that Jesus did not create. Consider the spiritual world with all the, uh, the angels, the good and the bad ones, and the, and the physical world. There is nothing that Jesus did not create. Consider all the rulers, the rulers in the spiritual world and the, the, the rulers here on earth. There is nothing and there is no one that Jesus did not create. So Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is creator. Jesus Christ is Lord. Because not only were all things created by and through Jesus, but as our text makes clear in verse 16, All things were created for Jesus. Do you understand what's being said here? We exist. The the sun and the stars exist. The eagle in the sky and and the whale in the ocean exist for Jesus. To glorify Jesus Christ, God the Son. Only of one other do we read this kind of exalted and, and extravagant claims. It's found in Romans eleven thirty six in the Apostle Paul's doxology to God. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forevermore. Amen. That's what Paul, the same writer, is saying here of Jesus. And then the extravagant claims continue. Look in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That Jesus is before all things is, as we mentioned before, that Jesus is God is eternal. This is the same claim that Jesus made of himself. When he said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, he says, I am. There's no past tense for Jesus. 
He is saying before Abraham, before anyone, I have always existed. And there perhaps is no more extravagant claim than the what comes next in this verse. In him, all things hold together. Understand what's being said. Jesus maintains the balance of the universe. The the galaxies, light years away, the, the molecules that are making up our bodies are held together by Jesus Christ. You remove Jesus from the equation and existence falls apart. That's what's being stated here. And all of this is to say that Jesus Christ Again, is Lord. He is Lord over our lives. He is Lord over the world. He is Lord over all creation. He is ruling it. He is guiding it. He is holding it together. He is moving it along for his purpose and for his glory. So Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is creator. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is head of the church. You know, after all that's been said here, the next verses really seem anticlimactic. But look with me in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Now, in a sense, this exalted language that's gone on before, it's actually is setting up the significance of what is being said here in verse 18. What Paul is saying here is this. He's writing to a church. He's writing to the church in Colossae. And he's saying this. You need to understand this. You, the church, understand that this wondrous Jesus Christ is for you. He's your head. The, The Lord of the universe is the head of the church. The eternal one who is before creation, who is the creator of all creation, he entered into his creation as one of us. He experienced death so that he could become the the firstborn from the dead. Or as stated in another passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he became the first fruits of those who have died, meaning that we can expect our own resurrection because of his. So Jesus Christ experienced the resurrection so that we might be given a hope of our own resurrection to come. And so in everything, even in experience the greatest suffering and the greatest victory, Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is the greatest. He is the most magnificent. To him belongs the glory, all the glory above creation, above the redeemed people of God. And as Lord of creation, as head of the church, we're furthermore told that Jesus Christ will bring all things together under his rule. And look with me in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
What he's saying here is that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross served more than to achieve salvation for individuals throughout the ages. We, we give thanks and we give praise that on that cross, each of us can say he has saved me, saved me as an individual. But it is more than that. What happened there on the cross began the work of restoration for all of creation. From the, from the spiritual world of the angels to the human world of, of men and women to the very material substance of the earth. All spheres of creation have suffered from the fall. And when the, and even the spiritual world was suffering even before that. When Satan had rebelled in heaven. What we're being told and to understand is that the cross and the resurrection began the work to reverse that curse. And that Christ continues to carry on restoring a, a groaning earth as, we, as it's described in Romans 8. That he is subduing all the evil and rebellious forces. That he is bringing into glory his redeemed people. And someday, someday peace shall reign throughout all of the restored creation. This is the work that was begun by Jesus. It is still being carried out by Jesus and will someday be completed by Jesus Christ. This is our confession when we say that I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. You say all the more wondrous it will be then when we continue on in the Apostles' Creed and we, we speak of Jesus coming into uh, this world as one of us. When we understand just who it was or who it is that came into this world. This is not just a good man that was created or or someone who was special, one of the greatest of all the prophets. This is God the creator. Uh, The God who is Lord over all, who entered into this world. And I tell you that these claims for Jesus are either the height of folly and delusion or else they're the only proper recognition recognition to give him his due. You know, as we have, have demonstrated, I think clearly through Scripture, Scripture leaves us that Jesus leaves us with no other choice. And C.S. Lewis makes this very point in mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said that we were reading, that that I just quoted several times, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Well, as eloquent as that was, and I agree with, there are still others who attempt to avoid these conclusions. And what they try to say is the idea that that Jesus being God was made up later. You go, go to Paul. Paul's the one who made Jesus the Christ, or made him the Lord Christ. Jesus himself never made these claims. He said, well, but we just read of the claims that Jesus made about himself. Well, so what? he never made those claims. Those were placed in his mouth by the gospel writers, who, by the way, we don't know who those gospel writers are. Now, is there any indication, any evidence from the manuscripts that these sayings were added? No, none whatsoever. Okay. The only basis for this kind of argument is, well, doubters need to justify their doubts. And so, well, he can't have said that, so we're going to say he didn't. Now, I want to take for a moment uh, with a pet peeve. I mentioned this in my Sunday school class, so I almost gave it away. But I said, no, i got to wait till I, I get up here. My, my pet peeve. From time to time, a new book will come out. Or you'll... It'll be the latest Time magazine or Newsweek, usually during around Easter time. And they they present the latest findings of biblical scholarship that supposedly present new findings that refute the claims for crisis we have just explored. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, some of you might remember, they called themselves the Jesus Seminar. And it was a collection of skeptical scholars who made fame. They'd get together annually, and they would vote. They'd have these different color marbles, and you would vote on whether uh, a saying of Jesus was was true or not. And, of course, anything that had anything connected with his divinity did not pass muster. And that became pretty famous. They they published a, a number of books, came from different members. The, the most recent uh, person to kind of to take up their mantle is, uh, is a fellow named Bart Ehrman. He's a professor of religious studies at North Carolina, the University of North Carolina. And he's described as a leading authority on New Testament studies. And he has dedicated himself to dismantling the traditional belief in Jesus as presented in the Apostles' Creed. And his basic thesis is, is this idea that, uh, that, that Jesus being divine was a, a doctrine that slowly developed in the Christian church much later. Now, that was not the original view of Jesus. Now, here's my peep uh, with such scholars. It, it, you know, it's not that they're drawing these conclusions, but it's this. It's this dismissive attitude toward other scholars whose findings uphold the traditional beliefs. 
There are other scholars. There are other scholars who have gotten their PhDs at Harvard and Europe and all the other liberal schools that these scholars have gone to, and they just ignore them completely. They, and they inevitably present themselves as, you know, I, I, used to, I used to be a believer, but once I you know, got, to, got into the academic world and once I got, did the research, I was forced to give up these naive beliefs because it's just where the evidence takes me. Well, to do that, to make that kind of statement, they just have to ignore the, the, the rigorous, and I'm talking about rigorous, biblical and historical research of other scholars. I mean, let me just tell you just right now that when it comes to, to the study in the original language of the, of the text of scriptures, the foremost work is done by uh, conservative scholars because they're the ones who actually have the interest in it. And, it, and it's difficult for me to believe that these so-called scholars can be ignorant of other scholarly work. Just ignore it. So, one thing I want to just stay here, that don't ever fear when you open up your magazine or you see on the news or whatever about the latest findings to cast out on scriptures. I mean, I can tell you, so I, look, I'm not a scholar, but I've yet to read or hear of new findings that I wasn't learning about 40 years ago when I was in seminary. There just isn't much, there isn't nothing new coming up. There's new twist on how to interpret stuff that has already been known for the last hundred of years. But there's no new true work being done. If you should ever have doubt, you know, and you're worried about this, or you, you're, you know, you're entering college, and boy, it just seems like that the real scholarly, the real uh, academic work goes against your faith. You just come, come see me. Come see Sam. We can guide you, you know. We probably have done most of the reading that we're ever going to done and do in this subject when we were way back in seminary. But we can take you to the scholarly books. We can take you to our scholarly articles that will help to strengthen your faith because truth, truth is the friend of the one who desires to honor his Lord. And whether you need to go through historical evidence or philosophical discussions or some other field, I can assure you that as, as time has been going on in the last decades, only more and more scholarly work that upholds the biblical viewpoint is being done, and, I can, and we can lead you to that. Now, i tell you what I am convinced of, is that ultimately no one abandons belief in Jesus Christ as God's Son and our Lord, as we've just been talking about. No one abandons that belief purely on academic persuasion. Something changed within them to drive them to not only accept this other evidence that is at best disputable, but then to dedicate themselves to spreading doubt as widely as they can, something happened long before that academic study that they did. 
And I can tell you, however the causes might be analyzed, most likely it will boil down to this. They never, I don't care whether they grew up in church or not. I don't care whatever they confessed that they believed. They never grasped the true glory of their Lord. As had been expressed in the Apostles' Creed. They might have had it up here in the head. They never had it. It never engulfed them. It never took hold of them. And what do they lose by giving up Jesus Christ, God, the only Son, our Lord? Jesus tells us what they give up. Let me read from Mark 8, 36 to 38. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Brothers and sisters, confess Jesus Christ as God's Son and as your Lord boldly. And let that confession take you to up to behold your Savior's glory so that you might honor him and and worship him. That you might deny yourself and, and take up your cross and gladly follow him wherever he may lead you. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is our Lord because he first became our Redeemer, May we never be ashamed of him. May we never stray away from him. But all the more, lift up our eyes. Lift up our hearts. Lift up our our whole selves to, to grasp the glory of our great Lord and God, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Together and sing 441, Jesus shall reign. Stand together.
And now may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.